not like the covenant that I made with their ancestors on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I had no concern for them, says the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach one another to, or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and growing old will soon disappear. The word of the Lord. Pastor Janessa. Good morning. This past September marked a major event in the Shoal Lake 40 community, a First Nations community on the Manitoba-Ontario border. In 1997, the community was put under a drinking water advisory, which just ended this past year. 1997. For reference, those born in 1997 are now 24 years old, which means that anyone 24 years old or younger has no living memory of not being under this advisory. And while under the advisory, the community had to boil their water for drinking from, or drink from pre-bottled water. To not do so would risk uh, illness and poor health outcomes. Uh, well, in my current um, pregnant state, I think that's how normal people say that, um, I'm trying to drink two liters of water a day. Um, never mind that I use water for cleaning, doing dishes, uh, and cooking. Each of those uses would require boiling, cooling, and storing the water needed. Then multiply that by the 300 people who are uh, living on the reserve, uh, either doing that boiling or also storing bottled water in massive quantities just to be able to drink. The cost in time, energy, and money is life-altering. As of September, a much-needed water treatment plant was finally completed, delivering clean water to the people living on reserve who had been without it for a quarter of a century. A quarter of a century. I can recall when Winnipeg was under a boil advisory for less than a week, and the outroar was, uh, or the uproar, was significant. A quarter of a century. Can you imagine? Imagine how freeing it would have been. Though boiling water and a water treatment plant have the same goal, which is clean water, the work and effort and energy required to keep up your own water treatment would have been so time-consuming, so exhausting and unending. 24 years of boiling or buying all of the water you need for consumption. 
and then suddenly it's over. The access to clean water is here, and a new freedom is discovered. Can you imagine? Clean water is something that we are all meant to be able to access. In our modern age, we have deemed it a human right, though many people still go without it, including over 30 Indigenous communities in Canada. But going much further back than our modern age, I think it's safe to say that it would also have been the design that God would have had for our world at the point of creation. In its original state, the earth was a place of generous provision and abundance, where humans created in God's image were to live as a part of it and take good care of it. Clean water would have been part of God's beautiful and perfect design. And so the fact that so many in our world, including so many in our own country, lack access to clean water is a reminder to us that we exist outside of God's perfect design for the world. That we live in a world where the brokenness of sin meets us daily in news headlines, severed relationships, and in a corrupted creation. It's in the book of Genesis that we find the story of that corruption as sin enters the world. But later in that same book, we are also introduced to the story of God's evolving journey of faithfulness with his people. And this is how it goes. As God's people lived through the brokenness that sin had brought to the earth, God established a covenant with them through Abraham. The covenant marked Abraham's descendants as God's people. God would journey with them, and in turn, they would be faithful to God. Later on, as God's people grew in number and needed more guidance, they would receive the Ten Commandments and many other instructions on how to fulfill their end of the covenant in detail through Moses. These changes were introduced as God's people grew dramatically. The stewardship of the covenant laws and the instructions and sacrifices uh, would begin with the family patriarch, Abraham. But as God's people extended beyond simply a family and into a nation, there came a need for an organized system of practices that would guide this ever-growing nation. One very significant part of this covenant as it developed was the role of priests in cleansing the sins of the people. The priests would act as mediators between God and the people, bringing ceremonial offerings to the tabernacle to present to God. These offerings were intended to cover the sins of the priests themselves and also the people that they were mediating for, to make them clean before God. Every single offering had specific details to its purpose and the steps required for it to be completed correctly. And because of the nature of sin, God's people were in constant need of these sacrifices to make them clean. And how we see this lived out is a predictable pattern that ended up spanning generations, wherein the people would follow God for a time, fall away, God in his faithfulness would reach out to them, and they would return. Over and over, the people would fall away and return, God would be faithful. The people would fall away and return, and God would be faithful. As you might know, or as you might imagine, this is a cycle that satisfies no one. 
So it is in Jeremiah 31, which is the text that was referenced today in Hebrew chapter 8 that Brady read, where God gives an indicator that this covenant that he has established will be in need of a replacement. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I will turn away from them, declares the Lord. You see, when something isn't the way that it should be, and we have to constantly work to try to right that wrong, but are never able to succeed, there's an unsustainability that exists. Like needing to boil water to be clean when you should just have access to clean water in the first place, needing to take steps towards right relationship with God when you were meant to just be in good relationship with God in the first place is unsustainable. There is no way to return to that original state in the face of such corruption. It's a broken means to an end. And so it was true. A new covenant was needed. The old one was not achieving what it was supposed to, and in God's wisdom, it was recognized, and in God's faithfulness, the way was made for it to happen. And the way was Jesus. Jesus, who is given the title the high priest of the new covenant in chapter 8 of Hebrews, is the one to usher in this new covenant promised by God. The way the book of Hebrews depicts this transition is to draw the analogy of Jesus as the high priest who will take on the familiar role of priest, but in such a way that eliminates the need for them that was established in the old covenant. By taking on the role of high priest, Jesus takes on the role of the one who will offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. But unlike the former priest, Jesus is blameless, as is pointed out in Hebrews chapter 9, and his sacrifice is enough to eliminate the need for any future sacrifice. Jesus, blameless and pure, brings himself as the offering once and for all. And through this, Jesus fulfills the second half of this Jeremiah text that Hebrews was quoting, which continues on from where I left off earlier with this. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is the picture of the new covenant that God offered long before Jesus came and was fulfilled through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And in reading this text, I realized that this new covenant laid out in Jeremiah, or predicted in Jeremiah, is marked by three distinct blessings, each of which shows us a contrast from the old covenant to the new. The first blessing that is listed is this, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. The word for uh, to write them on is the Greek uh, epigrapho, to inscribe or imprint a mark on. 
This contrasts from the Old Covenant, where God's laws were first inscribed or imprinted onto the tablets of the Ten Commandments, and then further elaborated on in the books of the law. The people access this information through their leaders and teachings, being read from their texts. This new covenant ushers in a time where it will be given to each person, no matter, uh, no longer existing outside of them. Sorry, and this is made possible through Jesus. In Matthew 5:17, he tells us that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. When Jesus came, he made it possible for us to accept him and thus receive the law into our minds and our hearts. Not to be granted access through others, but to be able to hold it in our own hearts. Jesus, as he ushers in this new covenant, embodies the law so that we might be able to receive it in the way God promises in Jeremiah. The author of Hebrews is making this link distinctly clear for us to understand. The contrast from the old to the new. And it is so deeply internalized that God's language is that it is written upon our hearts. I love the idea of God inscribing things on us because it denotes a radical and new personal connection to God that this new covenant is ushering in. Which brings us to the second blessing. That God will be our God and we will be God's people and we will know God. When I consider the idea of God um, inscribing his law upon us and also announcing that he will be our God, it reminds me of something. Two days ago, we celebrated my son Lincoln's third birthday. When Lincoln was born, he and I were given wristbands that had my name on them. These wristbands told everyone around us at the hospital that we were inseparably linked. When I went where I went, he went. He was marked as mine, and I as his. When I think about the idea of God leaving a mark on us, I think of those wristbands, a link between the creator and the created that distinctly makes us his. Where we go, God goes. We are linked. He is our God, and we are his people. Through Jesus, the laws of God are imprinted upon us, and this unbreakable connection is made. We will know God. No longer has God separated us through barriers and sacrifice and sin. We will know him. From the least to the greatest, all will be granted this access. That's a pretty big shift from the old covenant to the new covenant, which begs the question, what is it that makes the difference? What makes it possible for such a contrast to exist? What happens that makes us able to connect with God in this way when it wasn't possible before? And the answer to that question is our third and final blessing. Forgiveness. As if to explain how we will all know God, God continues with, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. The new covenant is marked by a shift in relationship between humanity and God ushered in by the work of Jesus to bring us forgiveness for sin that lasts. Gone is the need for priests to make sacrifices. Gone is the cycle of falling away and returning. Gone is the old covenant. And here is the new. 
In the opening uh, sermon of our sermon series on Hebrews, Pastor Carl pointed out that Hebrews is essentially the better book, depicting how the world that we live in through Christ is made distinct by it being better than before. And here we have the better covenant. The old one, as Hebrews said, is inferior and obsolete compared to what Jesus ushered in. The new one is here to fill in what the old one could not. Through God's faithfulness, we get to walk into the new covenant with freedom. What a gift. The journey we've been on this morning has been beautiful and wonderful. We have wound our way through the context and reality of the old and new covenants. We have contemplated the change made by Jesus, our high priest and mediator, the better high priest and the better mediator. We have understood the blessings of the new covenant. But that journey doesn't end here because every sermon should hold the question we will explore next, which is, and now what? And the answer that I propose to you today is, now what? Now we live into the new covenant in such a way that we participate in its work. Let me unpack that. In his book, Surprised by Hope, N.T. Wright explains to us that we live in an in-between space. We live inside of the new covenant established by Jesus, but we also understand that one day God will fully redeem the world. So we exist in a place of ongoing redemption through the new covenant, but we also see a time ahead where God will make all things new. The implication of this dual reality that we live in is that one day we have faith that Christ will return and God will restore all things, but while we're waiting for that, we have a distinct calling now, which is to participate in the restoration as we are able. For right, the Christian task is to do what we can to contribute to that future restoration in the time that we have now. In doing so, we live into the covenant that has redeemed us and impacted us here and now, but also offer God our faithfulness and hope in what God will do in the future. Two worlds connected, but we're here looking to there. Put another way, um, we take the gifts we've received through God's faithfulness to us in the new covenant, we take these blessings, and we live into them in such a way that we mirror the hope of the future when redemption will be complete. Allow me to return to my opening analogy to illustrate this one more way. The water treatment plant at Shoal Lake 40 is not the perfect end to this story. Far from this being a story of a heroic system that came in to save the community, it's a story of a failed system that has historically allowed and continues to allow people to suffer in these conditions. And though they now have a water treatment plant that will end one particular struggle, the reality remains that in our perfect creation, we shouldn't even need a water treatment plant. Our water should be clean. And one day, when God's redeeming act is complete and the earth is made new, that will be our reality. But we live here and now. So to live into the new covenant and participate in God's work means that we advocate for and celebrate access to clean water that this community has received and that we work for others to receive likewise. 
To do this is to recognize the gift of the new covenant that we live in and participate in the redemptive work of God in the world with our hope placed on its completion. To know what we have now and use that to continue to what we know God will do in the future. To participate in God's work. As N.T. Wright puts it in the book, what you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sowing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself, will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable. Until the day when we leave it behind altogether, they are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. Building for God's kingdom. That's the answer to the question of, and now what? Isn't it beautiful? Isn't it hopeful? Isn't it an honor? The new covenant alone is cause for celebration and for relief, that we are not asked to toil in an unending cycle of failure, but can live into the freedom that Christ's priesthood has ushered in for us. But then the invitation goes further. We can take that freedom and we can participate now in God's kingdom, not as passive recipients, but as people so grateful for what we have received that we can't help but spread that gift onward. What does that look like for you today? Perhaps you sit here with the first step of simply getting to know God and accepting the gift that he's offered us through Jesus, accepting the new covenant. Perhaps you sit here with a heart for justice and a desire to see people treated fairly and kindly, and your step is to work for advocacy for those in need. Perhaps you sit here with creativity and giftedness in music or art, and your step is to share that beauty around to offer people encouragement and delight certainly aspects of God's future kingdom. Perhaps you sit here with a love of helping others through tangible action and your step is to keep finding opportunities to serve. The list goes on, but all of it is tied together with the gift of the new covenant that allows us to breathe in freedom and use that freedom to participate in God's redemptive plan, to live into the new covenant and to participate in what is to come, to build for God's kingdom. Let us go and do. Amen.